heroin and IV drug use is booming in Colorado and across the nation. In the time period from 2011 to 2015, heroin seizures by Colorado law enforcement have increased by over 2,000%. Heroin-related emergency department visits have doubled, and heroin-related overdose and death have quadrupled. In 2015, 160 Coloradans died from heroin. Incidents of hepatitis C and neonatal abstinence syndrome related to heroin have increased by 80%. It's a catastrophe, and one which we as physicians, clinicians, and organized medicine are significantly responsible. The facts are that 80% of heroin users started by using prescription drugs, and most heroin users got their first opioid high from a prescription written by a well-intending physician or advanced service provider. As emergency clinicians, we see heroin overdoses and complications of IV drug use as part of our bread and butter. But do we actually do a good job of taking care of these patients, of keeping them safe, of ferrying them into recovery, of preventing overdose and death, of letting them know that we are there for them? I don't think we do. In fact, when it comes to IV drug users, a lot of what we do is dead wrong and we've been doing it wrong for a long, long time. Today, on the Emergency Medical Minute, we continue our series on Colorado ASAP's 2017 Opioid Prescribing Guidelines. Our topics, heroin, IV drug use, and harm reduction. Our guest, Lisa Reville, is the Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, an expert on harm reduction, care for IV drug users, drug policy, and to put it simply, a badass. Enjoy the show. This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. So this is Don Stater. I'm here on behalf of Colorado ASAP with Lisa Reville, all-star harm reduction activist slash boss. Lisa, can you introduce yourself? Yes, thanks for having me today. My name is Lisa Rayville. I'm the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. We're Colorado's largest public health agency that works specifically with people who inject drugs. Wow. So tell me a little more about harm reduction, because I think a lot of our listeners have no idea what that is. Sure. So we have prevention, we have treatment, and we have the criminalization of drug users. Harm reduction is simply the life in the middle, right? In a very magical world, there would be no drugs, but we live here and there's one safe thing that we can do today. Um, harm reduction reduces the harms associated with X. Today we're going to talk about in relation to drug use. However, it can be used in a lot of different forms. Designated drivers reduces the harms associated with your drunkenness. Condoms. I know what the kids are doing out there. Um, housing first programs, right? Um, reducing the harms associated with Homelessness. So um, it it has its um, 
has drug use on a continuum. So it's anywhere from managed use to abst uh, managed use to safer use to abstinence. Abstinence is a friend of harm reduction. It's just not a requirement. We believe if people want to live a life of recovery, they shouldn't have to live with preventable chronic diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. We believe if people don't want to live a life of recovery, they shouldn't have to live with preventable diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. That makes a ton of sense. And I've never really thought of harm reduction in the drug space or in the IV drug user space. And really when I compared this to something like safe sex practices, which we as physicians talk to patients about all the time. Mm -hmm. Are you using condoms? Are you having multiple partners? Mm -hmm. What are you doing to keep yourself safe? Mm -hmm. Then it makes absolutely no sense that harm reduction actually hasn't made its way into how we interact with our patients who come with problems of drug use and drug abuse and drug misuse. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So Colorado ASAP is, to my knowledge, the first medical guidelines in the country that has a whole section of harm reduction when it comes to the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. okay. Do you know of any other medical guidelines that have it? And what are your thoughts about medicine getting on the harm reduction train? Well, welcome to the party. Glad to have you. <laughs> no, it's a really exciting time. Um, it's a great time to be a harm reductionist. We know that if stigma, shame, and incarceration worked with drug use, we would have wrapped this up years ago. All that's done is drive use underground where people have gotten preventable chronic diseases such as HIV, hepatitis C, and died of overdose. We can do something different and we can do something better. Um, so it's a really uh, awesome time to have uh, healthcare providers paying attention to harm reduction. Um, you know, no one in the state of Colorado can get into substance abuse treatment today. Day, but there are things that we can do, right? Access to sterile syringes, the opportunity to dispose correctly, the opportunity to have a safe space where you can talk realistically about your drug use, the opportunity to have access to naloxone. Dead drug users do not have the opportunity for recovery. Um, so it feels good to have healthcare providers at the table with the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's about time that we got here. Yeah. So let's go through what we're going to talk about today. Okay. First, we're going to go through the six practice recommendations in Colorado ASAP's guidelines. Then we're actually going to go through two policy recommendations. And what we'd love to do is have you drop some knowledge bombs all along the way and educate us about how we can do harm reduction and do harm reduction right from the emergency department. Okay. Practice recommendation number one. Patients who abuse opioids should be managed without judgment. Addiction is a medical condition and not a moral failing. Caregivers should endeavor to meet patients where they are, infusing empathy and understanding into the patient-medical-provider relationship. So Lisa, yeah. what do people who use and abuse drugs, heroin, etc., think about the care that they receive in the emergency department? Well, first, with emergency departments in Colorado, there's a deeply entrenched street rumor with homeless folks and people who inject drugs that they can be warrant checked at the emergency department. Um, so that's been quite a barrier, just getting my folks access to uh, proper health care. Opioid users never want to be in withdrawal. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times people do have warrants for petty things of homelessness and that sort of thing. And so it can be very difficult to even get somebody to go to the emergency department. Um, what we do see as well is, um, you know, a lot of healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, medical assistants, um, have a very difficult time understanding drug use. And so they come from a place of fear, uh, which means that they're 
rude, uh, they're stigmatizing. Um, we know that a lot of our folks, if they have abscesses, a lot of times it's lanced without anesthesia because if it hurts enough, you'll stop doing drugs. But actually all that does is the next time they have an abscess, they try to lance it in my bathroom or underneath a bridge. Um, we also know that when folks um, you know, when shift changes are happening, they hear, you know, from one nurse to another saying this is just a drug seeker, it's just a junkie, no big deal, don't worry about them. Um, and that can be difficult. And then a lot of time their, their pain isn't managed very well, not only in the emergency department, but when they're admitted up to another floor. If you know, you know, you have a heroin user and they're admitted and they go up on floor and they're getting half a Percocet a day for pain, they're in withdrawal. So what they're going to do is either have somebody come in and supplement that with heroin or some, or some other opioid, or they're going to leave against medical advice because they're going to go out and they're going to get well. Well, the problem with that is, is then you're branded a problem patient when you leave AMA against medical advice. And so the next time you come back in, there's already these biases. So it's really a no-win situation for our folks to access quality health care in the emergency departments at this time. I remember the first time you told me about patients being lanced without lidocaine or anesthesia. And it just blew my mind mm -hmm. uh, that we would be so punitive with this group of patients. And speaking from the provider side, I do sense that in the emergency department, these patients are stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And it's all the time that we give people labels like, oh, the drug user in this room, mm -hmm. the junkie in that room. Mm -hmm. They're just here looking for narcotics. Mm -hmm. I've even seen people, and when I think back on it, with fractures who we did not want to give them pain control, narcotic pain control, because they'd used heroin or they were a current heroin user. Mm -hmm. So for those listening, this is a huge wake-up call for us. Mm -hmm. In the emergency department, we pride ourselves with caring for absolutely everyone, anyone, any place, any time, and caring for them with the utmost compassion. And this is a patient population where we fall far short of the ideals which we propose. Mm -hmm. So for those listening, make sure that you investigate your own inherent biases when it comes to people with opioid use and abuse. Because what you're telling me is that they do not find the emergency department or really the House of Medicine a friendly place to seek care. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So one of the things that you've educated me on in the past is the language that we use mm -hmm. to describe people who use opioids, mm -hmm. addict, junky, clean, dirty. Can you talk a little bit about the language that you try to use here in the Harm Reduction Action Center and how you try to destigmatize this disease? Sure. Um, so at the Harm Reduction Action Center, if you are part of our family, you're a participant or a friend of the agency. So anytime a participant may be introduced to someone in the community, they're known as a friend of the agency, along with board members, staff, that sort of thing. Um, People don't identify with the word addict, so we need to stop calling people addicts. Junkies is a reclaiming term. If people who inject drugs want to say that about themselves, that's fine, but we won't. It's been used as a very dismissive and divisive word for years, and so we won't allow the larger community to use that in our presence. Uh, clean and dirty, um, you know, a lot of times we've talked about that for sterile and used syringes, but also for people. I'm not using, so I'm clean, meaning that if you're using, that you're inherently dirty. And so we're, we're all done with that. Um, so we've kind of tried to ban those words from happening in here. Um, not to say that that doesn't happen once in a while, and the way people identify is the way people identify, and we want to be very, you know, encouraging to that, but we won't allow the larger community to continue to stigmatize in that way um, when we can do something about language. Yeah. 
No, that's very true. I, since you've told me that, I've really tried to clean up my language and how I address people who come in with substance abuse disorders. Mm -hmm. Finally, I'd like to really emphasize that drug use abuse really is a medical condition. And for so long, we've treated it like a moral failing. And that's why we bring, I believe, all this stigma and all this presupposed judgment about mm -hmm. these patients when they come into our doors. We don't treat them the same way we treat diabetics or mm -hmm. hypertensives or people with what we consider legitimate medical concerns. Mm -hmm. Addiction is as legitimate as any other medical problem. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we have to start getting into our brains as providers. Mm -hmm. It's been in the realm of uh, law enforcement and criminalization for too long, and that hasn't worked. So the shift to public health, I mean, now's the time that we're, we're talking about that, and, and then people are able to kind of understand what exactly is going on in our community. Mm -hmm. And for you who are listeners, just investigate your own inherent biases and try your best to overcome them. It's not going to be easy. There's still going to be a lot of work to do in our emergency departments, but having this fundamental shift in our perceptions of these patients is really going to go a far way in helping us better care for them. Practice recommendation number two. Every emergency clinician should be well-versed in the safe injection of heroin and other intravenous drugs and understand the practical steps for minimizing the dangers of overdose, infection, and other complications. When treating patients with complications of IV drug use, injection habits should be discussed and instruction should be given about safe practices. I think most emergency providers, when they encounter someone with a complication of IV drug abuse, for example, an abscess, have counseling that just says one thing. One, you should stop using. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if they go the extra mile, they warn patients that they may die from using. <laughs> and third, we warn them that may, they may get hepatitis C or HIV. And the only practical guidance that I've ever heard taught to me when I was going through medical school and residency and several years of practice afterwards was tell them not to use dirty needles or to share needles. How woefully, woefully inadequate that is when it comes to counseling patients about IV drug use. So Lisa, what I'd love to do in this section is educate our listeners on, one, educate them on the materials that people use to inject IV drugs. Mm -hmm. Two, talk about how we can keep patients safe and counsel them better than just don't use and you might die. Mm -hmm. So according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the average injector injects three to five times a day. That's a heroin injector. If you're injecting cocaine, you're injecting 12 to 15 times a day. So not only do I want folks using a new sterile syringe every time that they inject, I also want them using uh, new sterile equipment as well. And we'll talk about that in just a second. You know, one swipe of an alcohol pad before somebody injects will keep them out of the emergency department for abscesses. So that's something that right off the top that a healthcare provider can talk with folks um, as well. Anytime you break your skin, you're at risk of infection. Tell me, tell me about basically the materials. Okay. So a lot of people know that you need a syringe yeah. right, and a needle. Yeah. But talk about all the things, the kind of mechanics. If I go out and I buy heroin on the street, mm -hmm. what, do, what are the steps between when I buy that heroin and when I 
injected and get my high. Mm -hmm. So what we want folks to have is as clean of hands as possible. So if telling a person who injects drugs that may live underneath a bridge to wash their hands with soap and water before they inject may not be realistic. So we have access to BZK towelettes, uh, which are like after you eat ribs, you know, you can wipe your hands off because I want them to have as clean of hands as possible before they touch their drugs or any of their equipment. All drugs need to be made as blood-like as possible. So let's say someone's injecting heroin, we have access to cookers. People put heroin in there. They put in sterile water, ideally sterile water that would come from us. If people don't have access to sterile water, it doesn't mean that they don't inject. It means that they use tap water over toilet tank water, over river water, over saliva. And that's kind of the hierarchy of, of water for folks. We have had folks that have almost lost an arm by using saliva. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it is opioid users at this point aren't really getting high anymore. They're going from minus to well. Mm -hmm. Right. So when they're in withdrawal, they're trying to do this very quickly. You know, if you're homeless, you're either publicly injecting like outside or in a business bathroom. So people don't have the opportunity to do this with the time that they actually need, which is why people oftentimes get bacterial infections. We have access to tourniquets to try to find the vein. Um, a lot of folks, the way you're initiated is the way that you inject your entire career. Um, so a lot of times folks um, don't have very good veins because they haven't had proper vein care knowledge, don't drink enough water, that sort of thing. So you have water, so you have heroin, use a lighter or something to heat it up. And then there's a common misconception that you can cook away your drugs. So a lot of times people don't put enough water in there. We definitely want it to be as blood-like as possible. So you, people need to put a lot of sterile water in there. And then we have access to cottons. They filter up the impurities. So there's a lot of crap in drugs. There's no better business bureau for drugs. Um, so there's a lot of crap in there. So you put the uh, cotton in there and then you filter up with the syringe through that. If I'm an opioid user, I might hold on to that cotton because I never want to be in withdrawal. If my friend is in withdrawal, I may give him the cotton. He puts it in the cooker. He puts a little more water in there. He injects that and that's called a rinse. Hepatitis C loves to live in cottons. People know not to share the syringes, but a lot of times they don't have access to the cookers, cottons, tourniquets, that sort of thing, which people can also get hepatitis C that way. Yeah. And, you know, we are very well versed because of the HIV epidemic that people shouldn't share syringes and shouldn't share needles. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, HIV, when it comes to living outside the body, is a wuss, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. lives a few minutes, mm -hmm. maybe at most it lives a few hours or a day, mm -hmm. right? If it's got a big glob of blood it can live in. Hepatitis C is a badass. Yeah. <laughs> it is a Navy SEAL yeah. son of a bitch yeah. virus. Yep. It lives in a cooker, in a cotton, in a syringe that's been reused for up to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Right? Three weeks mm -hmm. that it could live up. And actually in injecting water, it can live in there for up to 62 days. Wow. Yeah. That's tough. So a lot of times folks, you know, will share injecting water. If I'm hep C positive, you may be using my injecting water and people can get access to it that way. Wow. Yeah. So that's one of the big wake up calls for me when it came to counseling patients is I really need to do a better job saying all the equipment needs to be new. The water source needs to be clean to prevent hepatitis C. Telling people to not share syringes and not to share needles might prevent HIV. It does a crap job with hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. And that's reflected in the numbers. And, and Lisa, I know you have the numbers for the people who have hepatitis C and use IV drugs in Denver versus HIV. Can you refresh me on what those numbers are? Sure. Uh, folks in Denver are at about 50%. Uh, people who inject drugs um, are at about 50% for hepatitis C. 
about 12-ish percent for HIV. With my folks, we serve over 6,000 unduplicated folks. So of that, 23% of our folks are hepatitis C positive upon intake, and 3% are HIV positive upon intake. So we also have health education classes to make sure that folks know the commonalities and differences between HIV and hepatitis C, and how to be a peer educator in your drug and social network without being a nag. Nobody likes to hang out with that guy. But my problem is, is you know, the loudest, sternest guy on the street has health information. I need to make sure that's factual and correct because mm -hmm. my folks need to be that grassroots ground army to have that factual health information out there for folks that'll never access a syringe access program. No one's mandated to come here, thankfully. I'm not parole or probation or anything like that, but people are being proactive about their health coming in. And a lot of times they think law enforcement sits out front. They do not in our community. Thankfully, we have a good relationship to make that not so, but in other states, law enforcement does sit out front. Or sometimes people think we're law enforcement who work here. So it can be incredibly difficult for folks to trust. And part of what we're doing in a syringe access program too is creating a relationship with a very marginalized population that's been very clear that stigma and shame is to not tell anyone, right? Mm -hmm. So we're creating this relationship with somebody so when they want to do something different, we're the first people they come to and they trust us because we're non-judgmental and compassionate. Mm, very, very much so. And we need to be more like that in medicine so that patients with abscesses, with infections, come to us when they have complications of IV drug use. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about preventing overdose. Because okay. we obviously see a lot of overdoses from IV drug use and IV heroin in the emergency department. And I'll say in my experience, this year has been the worst year I've seen mm -hmm. in terms of people coming in with overdose to my hospital. Mm -hmm. And I bet that it's very similar across Colorado and truly across the nation as this heroin epidemic has spun out of control. Mm -hmm. So when someone comes in with an overdose, what can I tell them? What practical things can I share with them to help them prevent overdosing again? So we are in the midst of an overdose epidemic. We lost 51,000 people in the United States to overdoses just last year. 174 people died of an overdose just in the city and county of Denver last year. In 2015, it was 129. At my agency in January, we lost over a two-week period, seven of my participants, six to overdose. So, so we can do better right? So there's four main reasons why people overdose. The first is quality of the opioid. So heroin purity in Denver is anywhere between 2 and 37 percent at all times. So no one ever knows what they're getting from bag to bag. Another main reason is mixing. So alcohol and opioids, benzodiazepines and heroin, heroin and meth, that sort of thing puts people at higher risk. The third main reason is any period of abstinence coming out of jail, prison, treatment, hospital stay, recovery, right? Folks can't handle the same amount as they could before and even a little bit they can overdose with at that point. And then the fourth main reason is using alone by the very fact that no one's there to witness, recognize, and respond to the overdose. And so those are just a few of the main reasons because a lot of times not only do drug users sometimes not know why they overdose, but also the general community just assumes people take too many drugs and that's not really the case. It's those four main reasons. One of the biggest things that we see, you know, we have access to naloxone, and we've had access since 2012. We've trained over 1,400 folks with access, and we've currently had 554 lives saved to date, which is really awesome. We know that because folks come back to us and we fill out a form about that. We are very encouraging for folks to call 911 and have them go to the emergency department. We know that there's often issues with paramedics during that time. That can be very stigmatizing as well before they even get to the emergency department. We know that they're on naloxone for a a few hours and primarily most of the discharge papers from those observations of overdose say stop using drugs please 
Okay. Okay. But even if they requested treatment at that time, the emergency department has no better line than getting somebody into treatment right then. What that person's going to do is they're definitely going out and using again. So people need to be discharged with naloxone. Um, they need to be utilizing standing orders in the pharmacy. In emergency departments, there's over 400 pharmacies in the state of Colorado you can walk into today and get access to naloxone. 133 law enforcement departments in the state are carrying naloxone. Five county jails are training heroin injection drug users in jail how to recognize and respond to an overdose and putting intranasal naloxone in their property for upon release. Arapahoe, Boulder, Denver, Douglas, and Jefferson County. So over 600 folks have been trained through that. So we really need to begin naloxone out in the hands of folks because most overdoses are witnessed and so first and foremost they always need to be in the hands of drug users so so Lisa mm -hmm. one I love the foreshadowing about naloxone because naloxone has a very big part to play in these guidelines mm -hmm. but here's what I want to do I want to summarize the type of discussion that you should be having with patients who come in with IV drug use disorders mm -hmm. when they come in with an abscess or when they come in with an overdose I sit people down now and I go through several things with them. Mm -hmm. One, I talk about bacterial infections, mm -hmm. abscesses and endocarditis. Mm -hmm. And the cure to not getting those things for these patients is hygiene. Mm -hmm. It's washing your hands. It's washing your skin. It's using alcohol pads mm -hmm. before you inject. Mm -hmm. And it's how you prepare your heroin. Mm -hmm. I inform them that they're not going to melt their heroin off, that the longer they cook it, the better it is to kind of kill some of the bacteria that's in it. I tell them that they should try to use clean sites when they inject. Mm -hmm. Don't inject in your groin mm -hmm. if you can help it. Don't inject in your foot. Try to use the upper extremities. Try to take good care of your veins. Mm -hmm. That's how you prevent bacterial infections. Mm -hmm. The next thing I talk about is hepatitis C and HIV. Are you using new equipment every single time. And that's all the way from the needle that goes into the skin to the cooker, to the cotton, to the syringe. And sharing in this case is sure as hell not caring because that's how we get contractible diseases between one another. The last one and the most concrete one is how to prevent an overdose. And telling people to just stop using is stupid. Let's call it what it is. Mm -hmm. It's stupid and it is naive, and we as medical providers can do a hell of a lot better. What I tell them is one, you never know what you're getting. Heroin is a box of chocolates, mm -hmm. right? You shared percentages here in Denver between three and 30 plus percent of active drug. Mm -hmm. So you never know what you're putting in your arm. Mm -hmm. Always use in the presence of someone else that you trust and who knows how to recognize an overdose always have naloxone on you so you can either save yourself or save a friend okay and third and this is the most aspirational one the one that i know is toughest is sometimes if you have new product from a new person trying to give yourself a test dose i'm not mm -hmm. sure if that's you know something that people follow but it sure as hell is good advice because you never know when you're injecting high quality 30 percent stuff versus very dilute heroin mm -hmm. Anything else to add to that counseling? Is that pretty good, Lisa, you think? Where is your local syringe access program, and oh. are you visiting it? Wonderful. Let's talk about practice recommendation number three. Practice recommendation number three. Emergency department patients who inject drugs should be referred to local syringe access programs where they can obtain sterile injection materials and support services such as counseling, HIV, and hepatitis testing, and referrals. I've went around to now... I think six or seven different emergency departments. 
and I like to ask two questions. One, does anyone know how to shoot heroin? There's been one out of around 300 doctors that's raised a hand. The other question I love asking is, how many of you have given a patient a referral to a syringe access program? And again, it's usually crickets and it blows my friggin' mind. Mm -hmm. So Lisa, how many people are you seeing referred to you from emergency departments? Very few, honestly. And I get more referrals from law enforcement than I do get from emergency departments. And that's crazy. <laughs> so you're saying that police are doing a better job referring patients to a potential life and health saving institution than our hospitals and our doctors and our nurses are? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. 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 Wow. I mean, that's where we're at. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's where we're at, we're going to get a heck of a lot better. <laughs> so if you have not already heard of a lot of the amazing things that syringe access programs do for patients, giving them new supplies, giving them counseling, doing testing, how the heck would you not want to send a patient with IV drug use or abuse to a syringe access program? It blows my mind. It makes no sense. So if you're a provider and you don't know where your nearest syringe access program is, find out, give them a call, put them in your discharge instructions. And I'm very proud to say that my hospital system went ahead and did this just, I believe, four or five months ago. Hmm. And we are beginning to educate all our providers that if you have an overdose, that you have a key access point and an ally in harm reduction action centers and syringe access programs, and they should be utilizing you guys. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the services and some of the numbers, just so people get a better frame of reference for what you do? Sure, so our agency has been an agency for the last 15 years. We've only had the ability to exchange syringes for the last five, so we had to be very clever on how we worked with folks before that. Besides vaccinations and washing your hands with soap and water, there's no better public health intervention in the world than syringe access programs, where you have the ability to dispose properly of used syringes, get access to sterile syringes, and access to referrals and things that you may need. We have health education classes that folks can get factual health information, the on-demand testing, we have vein care, overdose prevention, we have a place where folks can access mail and the phone to call a service provider. We're glad to see them. We give them high fives. We celebrate their successes. We get really cranky when things don't go their way as well. We really advocate for folks, and so a lot of times I get folks that'll call us from the hospital, and there could be an issue when we try to advocate on their behalf. We also pass uh, legislation. We believe the streets should influence the policies at the state capitol. We are right across the street from the Colorado state capitol, right where we should be. In the last eight years, we've passed four pieces of legislation to reduce the harms associated with overdose, and three, to reduce the harms associated with syringe criminalization. Um, so it's important that we you know, push forward for a healthier and safer Colorado. Yeah. Syringe access programs are awesome, and they should be in the referral network of every emergency department, urgent care, primary care doctor's office. Let's be real. They do things for our patients that we cannot do in the emergency department, and we should be sending people to them. Mm -hmm. Practice recommendation number four. Emergency departments should provide naloxone to high-risk patients at discharge. If the drug is unavailable at the time of release, patients should receive a prescription and be informed about the over-the-counter availability of the drug in most Colorado pharmacies. Tell me about naloxone. I know it's one of your favorite things in the world. <laughs> I love it. 
Naloxone has been used for over 40 years, paramedics and emergency departments, which is really great if overdoses happen around paramedics or emergency departments. So it's, we've had access in the hands of drug users since the mid-90s in Chicago. Like I said, my agency has had access since 2012. It's an opioid antagonist. It knocks the opioid off the receptor for 30 to 90 minutes while you can rescue breathe for someone and call 911. That's it. It's just a time buyer. There's a common misconception that people who use heroin um, will use more heroin if they have access to naloxone. Opioid users hate being in withdrawal and naloxone precipitates withdrawal. So opioid users hate having naloxone used on them or nar being Narcan. They like to have access for others because there's a lot of trauma in our community. When we continue to lose 129 people a day in the United States to overdose, we've lost a lot of good people. When we've lost 51,000 people in the United States last year alone just due to overdose, we've lost a lot of good people. Yeah, that's very, very true. And it just blows my mind that, you know, you hear statistics like that 51,000 from opioids, just opioids and not polysubstance abuse, it's 33,000. More people have died the last two years from opioids, both prescribed and illicit, than during the entire Vietnam War. It is mind-boggling. And the CDC just came out with a paper that said, you know what, we're underestimating the amount of opioid deaths. So mm -hmm. 33,000 isn't even the top number yet. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy. And another thing that just drives me crazy is when I hear from my fellow physicians and colleagues that when we give naloxone, we are enabling patients. What do you think about the enabling argument? Oh, absolutely. You're enabling them to live. Yep. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, not giving access to naloxone will pretty much make sure that somebody dies of an overdose. Yep. Listen, prescribe naloxone, support naloxone, naloxone keeps people alive. There is no intelligible argument for why we should not be pushing naloxone like they're hotcakes. Every day, all day long. Especially for patients who are using opioids, using high amounts of opioids, using opioids recreationally, or using IV opioids. This is something that you should be prescribing to all your patients. And in a perfect world, we should be handing patients naloxone out of the emergency departments. Mm -hmm. I, there's jails that do this, right? Five five county jails that are doing this. Medicaid covers it, Kaiser covers it, a whole bunch of other insurances cover it. There's no excuse. Yeah, and jails are doing a better job right now than hospitals are taking care of people by prescribing them and giving them, not prescribing, giving them naloxone out the door. Mm -hmm. We sure as hell should be doing better than jails when it comes to caring for patients. A practical aside for you providers who have never written for a naloxone before. It comes in really three forms. One, the Invisio Audio Injector. That thing is now 4000 bucks a pop. I don't write for that ever. You can also write for just a small vial of naloxone, 0.4 milligrams, and a syringe. And that's often what I'll write. Or you can write for a small vial of naloxone and a atomizer so that people can use it intranasally. I found that people who use IV drugs, like the injections, mm -hmm. people who are laypersons and are less comfortable with needles and syringes often prefer that it be preloaded in a nasal atomizer. So those are the two things that you should be prepared to prescribe patients oftentimes. There is a fourth one as well, Adapt Narcan. It's four milligrams and it comes in a two-pack. Wow, mm -hmm. I have not added that one yet. Oh, get it. My gosh, I've just been schooled, <laughs> medically schooled. 
practice recommendation number five. Emergency clinicians should be familiar with Colorado laws pertaining to naloxone. Colorado's laws eliminate liability risk for prescribing naloxone, encourage Good Samaritan reporting of overdose, and make naloxone legal and readily available over-the-counter in most pharmacies. Lisa, you're the badass who got most of these bills passed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Including yes. the open naloxone and Good Samaritan laws. I still hear doctors in our community who think that naloxone is either illegal, you can't prescribe it, who just are not aware of the laws. And that's why this practice recommendation is there. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a quick rundown of what the law in Colorado says mm -hmm. about naloxone and Good Samaritans reporting drug overdose? Mm -hmm. So we've passed four to reduce the harms associated with overdose. So in 2002, we passed the 911 Good Samaritan law and went back and made one more exemption in 2016. So this says if you and I are hanging out doing drugs and you overdose, and in good faith I call 911 and stay with you, you and I don't get charged for small amounts of drugs. Not only don't get charged, but we don't get arrested. You go to the emergency department and I go on my merry way. Four grams or less of heroin and cocaine, two grams or less of meth, a whole bunch of pot and paraphernalia. In 2013, we passed Senate Bill 14 to allow for third parties. People around people at risk of an opioid overdose need to have access to naloxone. Mothers, homeless service providers, me, law enforcement, we can get a prescription in our name. This limits civil and criminal liability from prescribing and also from doing the right thing. You can't really mess up naloxone, which is so great. If you don't have opioids in your system, it doesn't do anything to you, right? Mm -hmm. But we knew we had to pass that Senate Bill 14 because it's not often that a doctor will prescribe something to you that you'll use on someone else. So that's why we had to limit the civil and criminal liability. And then we were really disappointed for a couple years that doctors were not prescribing naloxone not only to opioid users, but to third parties as well. So we decided we kind of just went right around doctors and we passed standing orders in 2015. This allows for pharmacies and harm reduction organizations to work underneath a doctor's standing order for naloxone so we can push it out without a doctor on site. All 100 state legislators in the Colorado State Legislature voted in support of it and they never agree on anything. Right? So this means that people, you know, my folks, my overdose prevention coordinator trains folks every morning and pushes out naloxone. This also means 400 pharmacies in the state of Colorado you can walk into today. And even though it's a prescription drug, you don't need to walk into there with a prescription from a provider. They're utilizing the standing orders. Hmm. Yep. And that's exactly the right thing. Is I often write a prescription for a patient or for a family just so they have that reinforcement yeah. of something that they can take to a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. But in truth, in Colorado, secondary to the awesome work that Lisa and the Harm Reduction Action Center have done here, you don't need a prescription. People who abuse and use drugs can go and get those to have around them to keep themselves safe and their family safe. And concerned family members, I'll often tell them that if their loved one is using and abusing opiates to go get naloxone and have it around because just like an EpiPen, it might save their loved one's life. Mm -hmm. And participating pharmacies can be found at stoptheclockcolorado.org. Practice recommendation number six. Emergency department patients who receive prescriptions for opioids should be educated on their risks, safe storage methods, and the proper disposal of leftover medications. The risks of opioids. Vicodin is still the most prescribed drug in the United States by far. The U.S. consumes 80% of the narcotics in the world. It is absolutely crazy how much we prescribe these drugs. 
Now, we're starting to rein that back. We're starting in medicine to get control of how much we're prescribing. But we're still not doing a good job educating patients about the risks of opioids. The risks of opioids when you mix them with alcohol and benzodiazepines. The risks for overdose, constipation, the risk for immunosuppression and pneumonia that we've been seeing more often. Opioids are really dangerous, really bad class of drugs. And every time I write a script for someone with legitimate pain for an acute course, I still have a talk with them about how they're addictive, about how they have lots of complications, and about how they do not mix well with other drugs and medications. The most important thing that you also have to do is after people have finished with their opioids, if they do not finish their prescription, they have to dispose of their opioids. Because the number one risk of a toddler overdosing is leftover opioids in a parent's medical cabinet. The number one risk for a teenager trying opioids for the first time is going into a medicine cabinet and finding Vicodin or Percocet left over in someone's prescription cabinet. So you have to tell patients that when they're done with their opioids to either flush them or to take them to a take-back program. And fortunately, thanks to the work of Colorado Consortium, there are more and more take-back locations and programs in Colorado, and those can all be found and accessed at takemedsseriously.org. That again is takemedsseriously.org. Lisa, any comments on risk, safe disposal, etc.? I probably have a lot to say. The only thing that I'm really going to say for this is that I think we need to be very clear with the PDMP and with other prescribing is that when you cut somebody off, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be needing opioids. They're in withdrawal. If you're not referring them to treatment and if they don't want treatment, that's another issue. So I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, 10 years, we've been yelling at docs for years. 10 years ago, you weren't prescribing enough for pain. Now we're yelling at you because, or others are yelling at you because you're prescribing too much for pain. So there's just, there's a lot going on and that's why you guys kind of close in, it looks like, and you know, because nobody likes to be yelled at all the time. But then a lot of times when you, when you stop people right away, it doesn't mean that they aren't gonna still use, it doesn't mean that they don't have legitimate pain. Um, it just m means that potentially they're gonna shift to another really great pain reliever, heroin. You know, and that doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen some of the time. A lot of times I hear from pharmacists that they feel really great that they stopped somebody, you know, they got them on the PDMP and they stopped them and they said no more from this place. And then it's like, okay, well, where do you think they're going then? That's the same thing with pharmacies that should be giving out sterile syringes. Pharmacists can sell syringes. They just often choose not to. And so when I talk to pharmacists about that, they're like, well, if I don't sell a syringe, it means that they're not going to inject. And it's like, no, what that means is they're going to go out and they're going to share or reuse a syringe. Right? Mm -hmm. So I need everybody involved in HIV and hepatitis C prevention efforts. Yep. And especially we see this a lot from our primary care colleagues and other colleagues who do more chronic management, is that they'll suddenly and abruptly stop someone's opioids and send them into withdrawal and often send them to the street for an opioid. And that's why 80% of heroin users start with prescription drugs. First, it's a gateway drug, but two, after they get cut off, heroin's often cheaper, more easily available, and oftentimes more powerful than what they can get at a doctor's hand. Policy recommendation number one, harm reduction agencies and community programs that provide resources for people who inject drugs should be made readily available. 
in the state of Colorado, how many syringe access programs exist? There's nine of us. Two in Denver, two in Boulder, one in Fort Collins, one in Grand Junction, one in Pueblo, one in Jefferson County, and then we just started one in Aurora. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. Nine programs in the, in the state. We Me need more of them is what this says. Agreed. There's probably only going to be a couple more. There's not a lot of glory in starting a syringe access program, so it can be incredibly difficult for communities to want to embrace it. Even though we have black tar heroin in Colorado, which is difficult to snort and expensive to smoke, so you almost have to exclusively inject it. So let me ask about syringe access. These used to be called needle exchange. When right. did that uh, nomenclature change? So it was very 80s, 90s needle exchange. I think it was really guttural for a lot of people. They had a hard time pushing forward. Then we started calling it syringe exchange because we weren't really exchanging needles, we are exchanging syringes. And then that one for one was no longer best practice. So people still need to have access, not just exchange. So that's when we called syringe access program. The feds call it syringe service programs. I won't go there until I get money from the feds. <laughs> <laughs> Policy recommendation number two. When local programs are unavailable for these patients, emergency departments should establish their own programs to provide services such as safe syringe exchanges. This is one of the most forward-thinking and progressive ideas that we have in this entire document. And really, when we came together as a group and we talked about the problem in rural America and rural Colorado of heroin use and IV drug abuse, we felt very strongly that we had an epidemic that was just waiting to break out. Because these rural communities or these communities that don't have syringe access don't have access to new syringes, to new needles, to good education, they're at incredible risk for outbreaks of HIV and hepatitis C. And communities such as Austin, Indiana, which is perhaps the canary in the proverbial cave, kind of show what happens when communities don't embrace syringe access and harm reduction principles. And in case you do not know this allegory, in 2015, a small town of 4,000 people south of Indianapolis had an outbreak of 190 cases of HIV. So that's 190 cases in 4,000 people. It's just nuts. And if there was a emergency department that educated on harm reduction, or if they had a syringe access program, we could have probably saved a lot of people from this very contagious and possibly deadly disease. Well, and I, I think part of this too is, you know, we talk about rural areas, but even in Denver, we don't have sterile syringe access everywhere that it's needed as well. I'm Monday through Friday, 9 to noon. The other exchange is Monday through Friday, 2 to 6. Evenings and weekends are very difficult for folks to access sterile syringes. So it, obviously in communities that don't have a syringe access program, we need sterile syringe access. But also in communities like mine, it's important we haven't saturated the market. Mm -hmm. So you're right, Lisa. I think in a perfect world, every emergency department should have the possibility and should really have the capability of dispensing syringes to their IV drug users. It keeps them safe and in a weird way it also keeps your emergency department and your medical community safe. Because when you think about it, who is it that are the most difficult IV starts? It's people who've fried their veins either from chemotherapy or from IV drug use over a long period of time. 
Who are the people that we have the most needle sticks with? It's people with bad veins. And if those people with bad veins have hepatitis C and have HIV, because we have not taken care of them and taught them safe injection practices, what it does is it exposes our nurses to increased risk, it exposes our phlebotomists, and it exposes doctors to increased risks. So the number one reason you should do it is because it helps your patients. That's what we're in medicine for. We want to help our patients. But if there's an alternative reason for it, it's because you're helping yourself and it's because you're helping your emergency department family. So this is an idea that I hope catches on like wildfire. Every emergency department should consider starting a syringe access program or some type of program where we can give patients the supplies that they need to keep themselves safe until they are ready to recover. We should really explore funding for this, explore policy changes, and embrace this idea of syringe access from the ED. And that is my personal bias. I, for one, would love to start one at Swedish, and I will look into it, and I encourage all our listeners to do the same. So, Lisa, first I want to thank you so much for being part of this harm reduction podcast. Any closing thoughts you have for our listeners? I appreciate this opportunity today to speak to some of the challenges and opportunities of working with people who inject drugs and how we can push forward for a healthier and safer Colorado together. Thank you, Lisa. And I want to also thank you for all the things that you do to care for our communities. We really hope to bring that harm reduction mentality and practices into the emergency department where they belong. Thanks.